I found some books as I was preparing for today's service about uh, truth. I found this book. There are only adults in the room now, right? This book is called On Truth by Harry G. Frankfurt, author of On Bullshit. <laughs> He's pretty cynical, so I'm not going to use a lot of that. I also found a book called The Truth, which is, uh, I found all these in the, in the catalog at the library, uh, the Rust Library downtown. This book, a, a local attorney uh, who later became a minister by the name of uh, Laura George has done an extensive exploration of the five major religions and New Age and says none of them are right. She has a grading system and they, they all fail in one way or another. So she's invented her own religion and she set up a, a nice retreat down at her little home in a town she has uh, in a in a. Uh, development she calls Independence, Virginia, near the border with Tennessee and North Carolina. And that, as you can see, is a very thick thing, so I'm not going to read that either. Uh, I, I scanned it, and I, I got enough out of it uh, to really think about what perspectives we might have about truth. I was lucky enough also to get this month's or uh, the recent edition of the UU World magazine, which has a great article in it about how to be a patriot. Uh, in these times, it's 20 lessons for citizens of an imperiled democracy from a scholar of 20th century catastrophes named Tim Snyder. Number eight in his list of 20 is believe in truth. To abandon facts is to abandon freedom. If nothing is true, then no one can criticize power because there is no basis upon which to do so. If nothing is true, then all is spectacle. And the biggest wallet pays for the most blinding lights. Fascinating perspectives right now on what truth is. And, of course, I, have, I bring my own perspectives about truth. As some of you may not know, I wear an invisible scarlet A on my head for recovering attorney. And when I was in law school during the Watergate hearings on TV, I heard one phrase many times. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And, of course, all of us continue to hear that on all the TV mystery trials whenever a witness is sworn in court. Last week, we heard that same phrasing, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, in a speech by our new president, although I am quite sure he wasn't really sworn to an oath at the time because he then proceeded to tell some things which were not actually fully true. And he really does not want to be brought up on charges of perjury. That's happened to a previous president. And so I decided the title today ought to be a little bit more lighthearted. So I used the word truthiness. Stephen Colbert, the TV comedian, popularized that concept. He called it truthiness. He thought he made it up, but it was actually in some rare usage before he, he started using it. But it was a fake word, in his opinion, which Webster's has now sanctioned with two official definitions. Taking them from Stephen Colbert, truth that comes from the gut, not from books, and the quality of preferring concepts or facts one wishes to be true rather than factually provable as true. I understand from my reading this last week that there is a common human tendency to deny or reject information which causes cognitive dissonance, which is where you have 
things presented to you which are inconsistent with one's pre-existing opinions or prejudice. Psychologists tell us that this is especially true of those who are low in what is called in developmental psychology metacognition, who have relatively less ability to get outside their own perspective of what constitutes reality or truth. Those who have high metacognition will be able to suspend their disbelief or, re or, or rejection of facts that don't uh, constitute, aren't consistent with their own uh, pre-existing opinions. I suspect this may be a personality trait that is sometimes lessened by exposure to positive experiences with people or cultural contexts which are different from one's family of origin. Now, what is the truth? If, for example, 10 million Mormons believe in a book dictated by a young American farmer who was the son of a universalist preacher 200 years ago, or if 2 billion people believe stories told 2,000 years ago about an impoverished Jewish carpenter, does that make the stories or the book true? Are they more true than what 250,000 Unitarian Universalists think might be true? In a democratic society, it's easy to get drawn into that sort of way of thinking about what's truth. Majority rules, right? Except when the majority isn't enough to win election, according to the rules. Or when we, as the inheritors of the historic radical liberal reformation of religious thought, insist on using our rational capacity to decide how to follow our own consciousness, our own consciences, to determine what is true for us. But truth, that simplest and most self-evident of concepts, is not so easy to nail down. Gandhi, the idealist, wrote that what may appear as truth to one person will often appear as untruth to another person. But that need not worry the seeker. Where there is an honest effort, one may realize that what appears to be different truths are like the countless and apparently different leaves of the same tree. That takes some deep examination sometimes. Some theologians say that the various religions are like different paths up the same mountain. There is only one truth which comes to human societies in various places through many manifestations. Forrester Church of the All Souls Congregation in New York wrote that ultimate truth is like light shining through the windows of a great cathedral, which comes to the viewer in various colors and shapes depending on which window they're looking through. The light, though, comes from the same source. It looks different depending on the window it is shining through. So it may be like that with the various religious traditions of our world. Of course, in most UU churches, we try to look through a lot of different windows. We use readings from Native American, ancient Chinese, Hebrew and Christian testaments, Rumi and Buddhist scholars, as well as a lot of contemporary poetry. Truth is wherever you find it, and we believe, generally, that there is no single scripture that holds all of the truth as we see it. Of course, you may have noticed that each of our standard readings, which I left the same pretty much the last several weeks and months in our order of service, all refer to the light of truth, the quest for truth, the, the light of truth may it illumine our minds. 
to seek the truth and freedom. We say these things over and over again because they're our fourth principle of Unitarian Universalism. And it's been used as a topic and a, and a theme in many other ways in Unitarian Universalist circles. In his own uh, meditation called The One Truth, my recently uh, deceased friend and colleague in Massachusetts, name is Robbie Walsh, wrote, Everything around you is a manifestation of a reality that is a unity. It is there in the maple tree, in the polished beech stone, in the cumulus cloud. It is in a child's laugh, the worker's sweat, your own face in the mirror. It is in the fear of war, the anger at injustice, the longing for love, the commitment to reconciliation. These many truths spring from one truth. And the beginning of wisdom is to open ourselves to the mystery of that one truth. But we must ask ourselves, in what context? What does our rational mind tell us? Is there really only one tree, one light, one mountain? Or if we speak of one real truth, are we really speaking the truth? The search for truth is at the foundation of what makes us. Unitarian Universalists, our fourth principle. And by that sacred commitment to a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, we are declaring that we are seekers after truth, but we also allow room for others to be on their own search. Many UU congregations include atheists, theists, agnostics, Buddhists, Jews, pagans, along with Christians. How can a minister say that there is only one truth? And if, if there is only one, then perhaps some of us, maybe all of us, are wrong. We could fall back on the notion that each of us have one small piece of the truth. But atheists and theists aren't really climbing that same mountain. They're going in opposite directions a lot of times. Buddhists and Christians aren't always seeing the same tree. The scientists tell us that the Big Bang gave birth to one universe after everything that became the universe was already compressed into a tiny point. Do you believe that as a truth? It's a scientific hypothesis, unprovable, but there's evidence to support it. One truth that bound us, that bound us all together, Ein Sof in the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition. We not only have partial glimmers of that light, according to the scientists, we are partial glimmers of the light of that oneness. It's nice to contemplate that intellectually, and for many of us that could be spiritually nourishing. It's nice to open ourselves up to that kind of mystery, to acknowledge that we have come from stardust and will someday in billions of years end up as stardust, part of that unity that was bound together. And binds everything to everything. But we live in an immensely diverse nation, in an overwhelmingly diverse world. There are people walking up those different mountains, raking leaves from different trees and different yards are all around the world. Whatever that one ultimate truth might be, many truths are with us in our concrete daily lives and may collide. When they do, we know how people Choose truth or are forced to choose truth that is different from other people's truth. We know how people kill each other, of communities being torn apart, 
of nations going to war or nations being divided on perspectives about what is true. This area was fought over many times by the British and the uh, colonists, by the Southerners and the Northerners. These were questions of what was true to those people. And one of the most critical challenges which always face all of human beings is to learn to live humbly and gracefully in the midst of many truths, learning how to encounter the truths of others not as threats, but as opportunities for growing in our understanding of truth, opportunities for strengthening and healing our communities, our nation, or the world. But this doesn't just happen. Many of us don't have the capacity to encounter truth that is wildly different from our own and to stay open to that truth long enough to discern its value, not to us, but to the person who holds it. And then perhaps its potential value to us. And then if there is value for both participants in this conversation to try to integrate the truth into your worldview. You may not completely accept it, but you have to understand that it is part of a universal worldview. And living in the midst of those many truths means living in a way that you may be transformed by your encounter with that other human being or culture that is different and that your truth might have some influence on also that they might change to see your perspective. The philosopher Heidegger said the question of truth is a meditation on how to think. And Plato said that thinking is the talking of the soul within itself. So we could find that our search for truth becomes a meditation on our very souls. Our free and responsible search for truth and meaning is the way that we can grow and nurture our Unitarian souls. But isn't the search for truth just part of being human? It probably serves an evolutionary purpose to keep us safe from danger. We need to be able to discern between real threats of physical harm and the non-threatening presence of people who are somewhat different from us. We need to be able to discern who and what we can and cannot trust in our daily lives. That question is so alive right now in our foreign policy as a nation. So we each have developed our own ways of determining truth and threat. For some things, we try to rely on the scientific method, on fact-finding, including seeking opinions and recommendations of people we do already trust, who feel to us as if they're compatible with us. And matters of intimacy and ultimacy call us to have a different way of truth-seeking, though. The human condition is a paradox. We are alive but aware as no other animal uh, conscious that we will one day die and everything we know will have changed. This is the ultimate truth of our existence and the foundational question on all theology. We are so infinite, so beautiful, so full of potential to grow and change and impact the world. Yet death, we know, is our ultimate destination. And if this fact is true, how shall we live lives of meaning? Many theologies turn to revelation, to scriptures and traditions, which are said to have been revealed by God or through prophets whom God has anointed. 
And most theologies turn to Revelation to answer these ultimate questions. Of course, the presumption is that God's truth would be authoritative. And so many religions focus on living revealed truth. And many of the common truths the world's religions invite us to live out are beautiful. Love your neighbor as yourself. Harm no living thing. Do justice, live kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Trouble arrives only when we become like the disciples in the tale of the ashram cat. Ashram cat? I haven't said anything about ashram cat. Are you curious? You would like to know the story. According to the story, when the guru of the ashram sat down with worship, to worship each evening, the ashram's resident cat would get in the way and distract the worshipers. I assume, if you were standing, for example, that the cat would go up here and rub up against and have the tail wagging in the nose. After, So the guru ordered that the cat be tied up during evening worship. But after the guru died, the practice continued of tying up the cat during worship. And then when that cat died, another cat was brought to the ashram. So it could be ritually tied up during evening worship. Centuries later, the guru's scholarly descendants wrote about the liturgical importance and significance of tying up your cat while the worship is performed. Nice little story. Tradition and dogma and truth that is handed down over generations may no longer be relevant, even if it was once true. As Unitarian Universalists, we do not find ultimate truth in a particular text or creed, or a tradition. We choose instead to encourage each individual Unitarian Universalist to form and frame his own beliefs as he or she chooses. Our religion does not ask you to conform to someone else's dogma or someone else's conceptual understanding, no matter how powerful or lyrical those concepts may be. Our religion says your original wisdom and the longings in your heart can help you examine the mystery of our existence. You can consult other religions for guidance and inspiration, but it's up to you to navigate your days with the hope and integrity that you find within yourself. If other religions are construed as saying God has revealed these truths, our work is to live them. Our religious imperative says to us, God, or perhaps the beauty of the evolutionary process, gave us the capacity to discern truth and our work is to grow more whole and responsible and wise as we seek to know whatever that truth may come to be. And we also know that there are many sources where truth may be discovered. Scripture, literature, science, nature, relationships, but also within ourselves. What does your lived experience tell you about what the truth is in this world? Are there truths you know but have had no safe place to speak them. What do you really believe in? What gives you peace or brings you joy? What is it that disturbs you to your very roots and makes you turn away? What is your life being lived for? Finding meaning as we search within ourselves for our own deep truths is not easy. As though some people say, a you, you can believe anything they want. We ask you to continue to be in a self-examination about 
what you believe, and why you believe it. Where does it come from? In the game called Truth or Dare, you are asked to choose whether to answer a personal question or to take a dare and do something risky or embarrassing. Has anyone played that game? A few of us, yeah. Truth-seeking and truth-telling in our adult lives can be like that. Confronting our fears, owning and daring to speak from our own experience, challenging ourselves to name and live by what we believe with integrity and authenticity. These are things which may tap into a deep reservoir of pain and fear that we would prefer to ignore. But one writer says the withering of soul can come from not seeking our depths, and that can be even more painful than self-examination. If we don't find and share our own authentic truths, our world cannot truly be authentic for ourselves, and it cannot be brought to wholeness. Truth is the ground of our being, the power or principle in which our lives and consciousness are based. That is the purpose for which we live and die. That's the truth. And it is this which we are constantly seeking and struggling to name. Sometimes we succeed when a child is born. In awe and wonder, we celebrate that new life. We find ourselves drawn, for example, to a, a career, and we are successful. Or we are called to be in a particular place, and something marvelous occurs there. And we name that unnameable synchronicity a miracle, or that we have found our destiny. Sometimes we walk through a forest or look down into a deep valley to see a sunrise or a sunset, perhaps on the ocean, or read an inspiring psalm or a poem, and we're moved to name that unnameable feeling of connection to something ultimate as God. And all of those names are correct, all of them. And all of them hold a hidden danger because all truth probably is partial. What we hope to avoid is trying to tie down truth like the ashram cat. For when we do, truth can become fundamentalism. We make an idol of that truth. And when truths are related to the ultimate questions of existence are not lived or questioned, when they are frozen into creed or dogma, they are no longer fuel for our lives. They become a substitute for the fire that we should have for ourselves. We can risk living empty lives. Deep in us is a longing for security, our yearning for ultimate answers, the desire for truth with a capital T. We cannot stop ourselves from picking up small truths like smooth stones on a beach tucking them into the pocket of beliefs and saying, that one's done. I, I know what that is. The philosopher Voltaire has advised us to love the truth, but pardon mistake or error. Only in this way can we lighten our pockets of their stony weight to take up our search again, to be open to new truth. The loving community that welcomes us just as we are can help us to do this. Our free and responsible search for meaning isn't meant to be a solitary journey. We are gently held by the covenant that asks us to treat each other with care and respect. And our church communities can invite us to reality check with each other the truths we have found and to be responsible to one another for that accountability. 
here in a church, a Unitarian Universalist church, we can embrace the idea of religion as a journey, not a destination. Here we can find companions for the path that we are on. We can become responsible not only to what is within us, but also to those who are around us. Knowing that, for example, that uh, Mel and Carol are deeply exploring Tibetan Buddhism is, is a strength for me. Even though I don't follow that path, to the extent that they do, I am enriched by it. And knowing that this community and this faith is open to all of our questions, to our confusion and our grief, as well as to the wisdom we bring and the insights that we do share, means that we can be fully ourselves here. A degree of vulnerability. But the other aspect of that is that the community, by being in extended relationship with each other, can experience that truths can change with time. And our beliefs about what is meaning in our lives can change. That is not all that changes. This year, as I have been with you, we've been getting to know so many of you, Nina and I, as you are sharing the changing truths of your lives. With births and deaths, the bodies that become more frail, where knees and shoulders and and necks and backs get weak, And sometimes hips get replaced or hip sockets and we heal, maybe not fully heal. We have scars. We have wounds that never heal. But there are changes in all of our lives and each of the changes we experience together, even the delightful ones, is sort of like accepting a small death because we have to say farewell to what was and then move on to what is and what is becoming. We have to release our grip on the truth we already know and open our hearts and hands to search for the little bits of truth that are still ahead of us. Now, we're near the end of our time together this morning, but I needed to share with you something that's very important and touching for me and and my family. Like your truth, My truths are changing all the time in response to the situations, experiences, personalities, and challenges that we encounter. Just a year ago, Nina and I got a precious invitation to make a big change in our lives, to come to Virginia to be part of our daughter's growing family. After our 10 years in Massachusetts, where we had moved to be part of our son's family with his young sons, we had put down roots. We had made friendships. We really felt comfortable that we knew the way to Boston and back without without a problem. We certainly knew the way to the airport. But we felt that even with all of that, it was a good time to make a new start, to put down new roots in a new community in Fairfax, and eventually our, our, our opportunity to be here with you in, in Leesburg. It wasn't an easy transition, but it was the right thing for all of us. And we are very glad that we made that decision when we did to become closer companions with Eden and her husband, Winston, and our cherished granddaughters, Maisie and baby Margot in Fairfax. The attachments we had already formed with them from a distance have become much stronger by our daily reinforcement over these months of intimacy. Where Nina is there three quarters of the time and I'm there at least half the time. And so we know that some truths about family, love, and trust can become even more true when you can be open to that. 
And I think and I can speak for all six of us that we are so grateful for this special opportunity, which opened for our family to become accepted so quickly as a part of this community over these past few months. We have really felt welcomed by so many of you in so many ways. But over the past two or three months, a long-term dream opportunity has solidified and become real for Eden, our daughter. And so we will all be making another move this summer, this time back to Texas, where Eden will take up her new mid-career role as a tenured professor at Rice University in Houston, teaching and guiding and publishing research to promote greater understanding about what the gifts of diversity are and what the costs of prejudice are. It will be a special kind of homecoming for all of us. This year marks 50 years since I started at Rice and 20 years since I drove Eden there to begin her studies. Nina and I met and were married in Austin, where Eden was born. Although Winston was born in Dallas, he met Eden in Houston, where they both did their undergraduate and most of their graduate work in Houston. And Winston's parents made their move to Houston several years ago. So even without the benefit of ruby slippers, we have to admit that there's no place more like home for all six of us than Texas. I know for many of you that's hard to accept because Virginia is your home. But we have moved, I think I counted up the other day, something like 15 times in our 42 years together, Nina and I. And this is probably our last move. Last week, I shared our Houston plans with Alan and Jenna and Ricky, and they assured me that they are well prepared to begin the search for a superior new minister very soon. Of course, Nina and I will continue to be as fully engaged as possible, even while we are making our bittersweet rounds of farewells to you all over the next few months. And as we go through that process of packing up one more time, which for what we certainly hope will be our last cross-country move before accepting some degree of retirement. We want you to all to know that the relationships we have been forming in Virginia, in Fairfax, and in Loudoun County here with you, as brief as they have been, will remain, remain precious to us as we are changing. We are reminded that each moment and each relationship, however brief, can make a difference in our lives and must be treasured for its own sake. And we hope we are making and will continue to make a difference in your lives for our remaining months together. And so I will at some point uh, offer and maybe refuse that opportunity to sing the Bob Hope song. Thanks for the memories and thanks for the moments we have shared together. Moving forward through our subjective experience of time, wherever we go, may we all develop our metacognitive abilities to reject truthiness on its face to be seekers of greater truth, to take the risk of opening our perspective, being vulnerable. And let us continue to search freely and responsible for truth as we can. Let us seek and know that ultimately our search conducted with integrity may help humanity to evolve consciousness itself toward an ever greater lived interdependence and toward what we hope will be a healing of our planet. Truth is calling us to step forward on this path, which can be paved with fear and wonder, with pain and joy, with awe and delight. May our fourth principle continue to be our faithful guide toward greater authenticity, greater integrity, and greater humanity in this shared journey.
along life's paths. Thank you for your attention this morning.